Good morning, Nashville. I'm Braden Gall, and this is the 440 for Thursday, October 15th. As expected, for the better part of an entire calendar year, COVID is starting to have a major impact on the SEC. Nick Saban, that's right, Nick Saban, and the Alabama Athletic Director Greg Byrne have tested positive for COVID. Now, neither will be around the football program for at least two weeks. Saban said that he immediately left work and isolated at home and is not experiencing any symptoms. Offensive coordinator Steve Sarkeesian, who has been a head coach at both the University of Washington and USC, will take over as the interim head coach or acting head coach or COVID coach. I'm not sure what the hell you call it. This is new territory for all of us. And it's not like it's on the eve of the biggest college football game of the entire year or anything. Georgia is set to visit Alabama on Saturday night, and upon the news about Saban, the point spread immediately dropped from six to four points, and currently the game is still scheduled to take place. You degenerates should be ashamed of yourselves. Additionally, the SEC postponed the LSU and Florida game this Saturday due to a COVID breakout in the Gators program. Florida had 19 positive player tests and about a dozen or so more quarantined due to exposure, so the game had to be rescheduled for December 12th. Also, after calling for the Swamp to be packed this weekend, two members of Dan Mullen's coaching staff have also tested positive, and Mullen immediately backpedaled as fast as humanly possible. Here's the really important thing to remember. Please. Alabama is like an NFL team. Chris Lowe was recently embedded with the program for a story for ESPN about what Alabama is doing to make sure it was setting an example of how to do everything correctly and safely. Be sure to check out our interview with him, by the way, on the Fringe Element podcast this week. But it's a safe bet that Alabama and Vanderbilt are the two strictest programs in the SEC as it pertains to protocols and procedures and thresholds. And if you listen to that conversation we had with Chris, that every single major program in America and college football has its own set of procedures and protocols and thresholds. So what do we know about what works in pandemic sports and sort of just pandemic life? Bubbles clearly work. Testing and tracing is critical. Wearing masks is important. Staying outside. Keeping minimal contact with large groups of people. On and on and on and on. College football, almost by definition, breaks every single rule without any form of transparency, accountability, or uniform protocols. Something that the NFL has in place and still couldn't even handle easily this week with the Tennessee Titans. Florida saw a massive spike in cases on Sunday after the Texas A&M game and then started testing every day. Without testing every day, you are almost guaranteed to have an outbreak when dealing with a hundred young people and dozens of staffers and coaches who are all in constant contact with each other. As of Thursday, they are four days removed from the spike and are still actively trying to trace it all. I honestly don't have any more analysis for you. I could rant about how out of whack our priorities are or beg people to pay attention or calmly ask for people to put forth the minimum amount of effort to care about each other. But then I might get called a name, or worse, you might unfollow me on Twitter. I'm so done with this shit. I got a couple of quick notes from the Titans this morning as Tennessee traded, that's right, traded, disgruntled linebacker Kamale Correa and a 7th round pick in 2021 to Jacksonville for a 6th round pick in 2021. Correa asked to be traded this week after seeing his playing time diminished greatly. He played just 39 total defensive snaps in the team's first three games, going from 17 snaps in the season opener to just 12 against Jacksonville and only 10 in the win over Minnesota. Of course, Correa was inactive for the victory over the Bills on Tuesday night after being on the COVID list and went public on Wednesday morning about his desire to be traded. And John Robinson was happy to oblige. On the same day, Savage. 
In his press conference on Wednesday, it sounded like Mike Vrabel was bullish on Derek Roberson being available to fill the void left by Correa, who did actually make some plays near the end of last season and in the playoffs. Football nerds have always liked Roberson's work rate, but he's yet to play a single snap in 2020 due to an injury, and it's okay for your first reaction to the loss of a pass rusher on a team desperate to create pressure on the quarterback to be, okay, but really, at the end of the day, we've seen what this locker room culture is all about, and it was on full display on Tuesday night. So if somebody doesn't want to be a part of the team, both sides are probably going to be better off moving on. The injury report for Wednesday was just a projection since the team didn't practice the day after a game, so it's hard to know what to take from it. The report had 17 players listed as did not practice for the hypothetical session. Nothing specific, of course, about Taylor Lewan or Darrington Evans, who both left the game on Tuesday with a shoulder and hamstring injury, respectively, and never returned, something absolutely Titans fans will keep an eye on for Sunday. Some good news for the unbeaten Titans, however, is the end of the COVID ordeal may be in sight. In addition to Daquan Jones and Bo Brinkley being active on Tuesday night, rookie first-round pick Isaiah Wilson, wide receivers Adam Humphreys and Cam Batson, as well as defensive backs Christian Fulton and Greg Maben were all activated from the COVID-19 reserve list and could contribute this weekend against Houston. Wednesday was quite the day for soccer fans in Music City. Nashville SC had its best half of offensive soccer in club history, scoring three goals in the first 23 minutes against Houston on the road. The squad seeded one goal in the second half, but after begging for offense for weeks, the club responded with its most inspiring 45 minutes of soccer that I've ever seen. And the driver was DP Hani Mukhtar, who scored twice with two brilliant goals. One came off a delicate touch to himself around a defender and ended with a far post finish, while the other came off a set piece where he bent it inside the near post from 30 out and over the wall. A thing of beauty. Mukhtar finally delivered on all that DP potential, and it could not have come at a better time. After the 3-1 win on Wednesday, the club moves from 11th place up to 8th place in the Eastern Conference standings and is now squarely in the MLS Cup playoffs with six matches to go in the season. In fact, Wednesday was a celebration of the beautiful game in Nashville because the win Wednesday night wasn't the only thing soccer fans were celebrating. The soccer stadium and its very long and protracted legal battle might have come to a victorious end. It's an extremely complicated ordeal if you've tracked it over the last two or three years with tons of moving parts and different parties fighting for various concessions, tons of legalese. Things that I'm not qualified to discuss. So let's bring in the Nashville banner, Steve Cavendish, to explain what it means that Chancellor Ellen Hobbs Lyle of the Nashville Chancery Court dismissed the Save Our Fairgrounds case against the stadium. So after opponents of the soccer stadium at the fairgrounds lost their fight in the council three years ago, they turned to the courts to try to stop the project. Following a month-long trial, Chancellor Ellen Hobbs Lyle ruled that the stadium and existing uses, which includes things like the flea market and state fair, can peacefully coexist at the fairgrounds. Additionally, and this is the big thing, the court found that there was no intent or design by Metro or the club and its owners to destroy or eliminate existing uses at the fairgrounds. So that means that construction on Nashville SC's new home, a 30,000-seat stadium that would be the biggest soccer-specific stadium in the country, can proceed. Now, there's another suit that's pending, but this was the stadium opponent's last best shot at trying to stop the project. And when you look at the statement that Nashville SC put out today, you can see that they think that this was the last major hurdle. As of right now, the stadium is set to open in May of 2022, which would obviously be the beginning of Nashville SC's third season 
of action. Also, make sure you check out Lamestream Sports Podcast every Friday right here on the 440 Sports Network. Steve Cavendish is, of course, my co-host. We talk inside baseball about the sports media landscape in Nashville. And our guest this week will be Paul Kaharski. So check that out, rate, review, and subscribe. Thanks for listening, everybody. Make sure you rate, review, and subscribe. Share the show. Tell all your friends how awesome it is. My name is Braden Gall. This has been the 440 for Thursday, October 15th. 440 is a production of 440 Media, written and produced by Braden Gall, music by William Tyler.